Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing why the Romans killed Jesus. Why was Jesus crucified? As in, how did he get himself killed? How did Jesus find himself being sentenced to death by the Roman government? The crucifixion is central to the Christian story. If Jesus hadn't been crucified, the symbol of the cross would not only hold entirely different connotations, it wouldn't enjoy its ubiquity in Western art and culture. The character of Christianity itself would be totally unrecognizable, assuming it would still exist at all. So how did Jesus end up in the Roman version of the electric chair? Just as there are vast differences between the historical Jesus and the Jesus worshipped by Christians, there are vast differences between the mythology surrounding the death of Jesus and the most responsible historical interpretation of the evidence surrounding the death of Jesus. So let's compare the two. What's the mainstream Christian story about Jesus' execution? If you ask an apologist or a pastor, how would they respond to the question, why was Jesus crucified? There's a strong tendency stretching back to the early church, into the present, to blame the Jews for the death of Jesus. Jews have been labeled Christ killers for centuries, and this has contributed to pogroms and incited the murder of Jews during the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the Holocaust. Jesus ran afoul of the deicidal Jewish leaders, who eventually had him crucified to shut him up, the common Christian narrative goes. Matthew chapter 27, 24 through 25. Pilate took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. You know how crowds chant. This passage has been cited to support the concept of Jewish deicide that the Jews as people are Christ-killers, not just the individual Jews who supposedly pushed for the execution. As a Christian, I believed the Jews had Jesus killed because they considered him a blasphemer. I remember watching and participating in Easter dramas put on by the church every year as a kid, and that's what was depicted. It wasn't the Roman authorities, it was the Jews. A big problem with this common narrative is that the Romans were the ones to dole out executions. Crucifixion was a Roman punishment, carried out by the Roman government, for violating Roman laws, not a Jewish punishment carried out by Jewish authorities for violating Jewish laws. If Jesus was crucified, it was because he ran afoul of the Romans, not the Jews. An important flag to plant, which needs to be planted in all discussions about Jesus, is that we must not conflate the mainstream Christian, mythologized Jesus with the historical Jesus. Christians love to quote Bart Ehrman and other historians who emphatically argue for the existence of Jesus, but the historical Jesus bears little resemblance to the average church-going Christian's notion of Jesus. They're Jesus smuggling. They make arguments about the existence of the historical Jesus and various facts about his life, and at some point, they've switched from the historically responsible, scholarly view of Jesus to their personalized, modern, mythologized version of Jesus. We can safely take it as a fact that Jesus was crucified without validating a jot of the Christian mythology surrounding Jesus' death 
and resurrection, for example, the role of the Jews or Jesus' ability to fly. So I grew up evangelical. Maybe if I had gone to a more liberal church, the life and death of Jesus would have been explained a bit differently. Maybe he would have been portrayed more as a gentle rabbi who simply taught that we should love one another, or as a sort of Jewish diogenes, unburdened by materialistic concerns. But if that was the case, why was he killed? On these interpretations of Jesus' life and teachings, the question, why was he executed, is not so easy to answer. To quote historian of early Christianity Bart Ehrman, if a scholar tries to explain Jesus' life in a way that doesn't make much sense of his death, then that should be the first clue that something is amiss. Ehrman has also said, the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans is one of the most secure facts we have about his life. End quote. Jesus was crucified by the Romans, and mainstream versions of Christianity don't do a very good job of explaining that fact. Whether you're an evangelical or a Unitarian, it's not exactly clear why Jesus would have been targeted by the Roman authorities. So what was the rationale for the Romans to kill Jesus? As I said, crucifixion was a Roman punishment that was carried out by the Roman government for violating Roman laws. It was not a Jewish punishment carried out by Jewish authorities for violating Jewish laws and the Roman government was not controlled by the Jews. There's a sort of Jewish conspiracy at the heart of this story that seems to go without much notice. But anyway, many Christians believe that Jesus committed blasphemy, or challenged the religious dogma of the Jewish leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin. And then the Roman government did their bidding for some reason. But of course the Romans didn't care about Jewish blasphemy laws, or about interminable disputes over Jewish doctrine and practice. Why would they? In one major respect, the mainstream Christian interpretation is consonant with the mainstream historical interpretation. Jesus was essentially killed for speech. The charges, however, were political, not religious in nature. Ancient Roman culture was quite different from today. The problem, as far as the Roman authorities were concerned, is that Jesus had been calling himself the king. To quote Dr. Ehrman, he didn't mean it in a spiritual sense and the Romans didn't interpret it in a spiritual sense. Being king meant being the political leader of the people of Israel, and only the Roman governor, or someone the Romans appointed, like Herod, could be king. Anyone else who claimed to be king was usurping Roman prerogatives and was seen as a threat, or if not a threat, at least a public nuisance. Romans had ways of dealing with lower-class peasants who were troublemakers and public nuisances. They crucified them. End quote. Remember, this was a vastly different society. Liberal notions of the separation of church and state and freedom of speech were non-existent. To say that king of the Jews was to be interpreted in a strictly religious sense and in no way a political sense presupposes a degree of separation between those two things that didn't really exist until a few centuries ago. It takes a secular mind to even think Jesus' declaration that he was king of the Jews was totally divorced from any political meaning. Moreover, Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher. His teachings about the coming Son of Man, the Kingdom of God, the ruling of the twelve tribes of Israel, his entire apocalyptic vision may have been objectionable to the authorities. It's worth noting that Rome was a superstitious pagan society governed by superstitious pagans, which further changes the calculations of the Romans. And besides, what if Jesus' agitation inspired something that the Romans would rather not deal with. Any threat to the fragile stability the Romans had established was crushed with brute force. 
That was also the deterrent logic of crucifixion. Make a very public example of anyone who wants to break the law. Jesus ran afoul of the Roman authorities, and they handled him as they handled all nuisances. Jesus fought the law, and the law won. There is no evidence that Romans executed those who offended the religious sensibilities of the Jews. Think about it. Why on earth would they do that? Why would they care? Why would the Roman government execute someone for violating Jewish law? And Jesus wasn't even someone who undeniably violated Jewish law. He was a rabbi with a different interpretation of the law. If we agree that Jesus was crucified, then the field of viable interpretations of Jesus' death is narrowed considerably. The mainstream Christian interpretation, the one based on the Bible that I learned in Sunday school, is eliminated. The Romans were the ones who did the crucifying, and they weren't controlled by the Jews. So Jesus must have somehow ran afoul of the Romans. Roman pagans were not crucifying Jews for blasphemy or for violating the Sabbath. There was no reason for the Roman government to do so, and there's no evidence that they were in the habit of doing so. The Romans did kill anyone who threatened the Roman political order. It's not as if there was free speech back then. The Romans had a zero-tolerance policy when it came to challenging Roman rule. He taught that Rome would soon fall, during his disciples' lifetime, and that he would be the new leader, with the disciples ruling by his side. In Mark and John, in both trial and execution scenes, Jesus was charged with calling himself the king of the Jews, preaching the imminent downfall of Rome and the overthrow of the Roman authorities. Jesus had been calling himself the king. Jesus may well have come to suspect that he would eventually get into trouble with the authorities, and Mark, when he's anointed by an unnamed woman, he hints at his own coming demise. Of course, any detail like that may have been apocryphal, but it may not have been. His predecessor, John the Baptist, was executed. The same happened to other prophets as well. There's no reason Jesus wouldn't have been able to predict that a similar fate may befall him. One might wonder, though, if it's predictable that Jesus would be killed for calling himself the king of the Jews, why would he do so publicly? Why would he publicly declare that he would usurp the throne, if doing so would lead to serious trouble? Well, he probably didn't. He did, however, teach his disciples in private, including one named Judas. So, as a Christian, how do you make sense of the death of Jesus? The story always seems to be something like, he called himself God, which the historical Jesus did not do, or he was consistently dunking on the Jewish authorities, owning them with facts and logic. They didn't know how to respond, and they had him killed to shut him up. But the Romans are curiously passive. In the Gospel of Luke, Pilate and Herod both find Jesus to be innocent. So if you're a Christian, how do you make sense of the Bible's claim that the Jews, and possibly the Jewish people as a whole, deserve the blame for the death of Jesus? The reality is that the Romans simply would not have cared how the Jews felt. So if Jesus was crucified, it's because the Roman authorities wanted him crucified. It's easier to see the inflated role of the Jews as the product of early Christian anti-Semitism rather than an accurate accounting of historical events, especially when you consider details like a crowd shouting that they accept that the blood of Jesus will be on their descendants. To quote Dr. Ehrman once more, if you arrange the Gospels chronologically, Pilate is increasingly portrayed as innocent for condemning Jesus to death. Historically, Jesus' execution 
was almost certainly Pilate's decision from beginning to end. Even if Jewish authorities handed Jesus over to Pilate, he, as governor, is the one who decided what to do with him, without help from the local authorities. The Romans didn't execute people for no reason at all, or for offending religious sensitivities of other Jews. End quote. Here's another interesting wrinkle in the crucifixion narrative. Many crucifixion victims weren't taken off the cross right away, and when they were eventually taken down, they were tossed into communal graves. That was standard operating procedure for those punished with crucifixion. Being denied a good burial was part of the punishment. But that's not what happened to Jesus, and we don't have an explanation for why Jesus would have been an exception to the rule. Or rather, the explanation we're given was likely a later addition. Jesus was supposed to have been taken down right away and buried in a private tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, not left to hang for a while and tossed into a communal grave. Joseph is the reason Jesus didn't get the same treatment as nearly everyone else who suffered his fate. In our earliest sources, the quote-unquote burial of Jesus is mentioned, but the exact nature of the burial isn't specified, and it's never explained that his burial wasn't what you would expect for a lower-class peasant who was a victim of crucifixion. It's the charity of Joseph that explains this anomaly, which we don't see in Paul. We only see it in the Gospels. Joseph of Arimathea is attested to in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul's writings came before the Gospels. And one big detail missing from Paul is Joseph of Arimathea, the man whose presence explains why Jesus' burial was unusual for one who suffered his fate. Paul never mentions Joseph of Arimathea. There's no mention of him until you get to the Gospel of Mark, 30 or 40 years after the fact. Paul indicates that Jesus was buried, but he says nothing of Joseph of Arimathea or a private tomb. He may just as well have meant that Jesus was buried in a mass grave, which was the norm for crucified criminals when they were eventually taken off the cross. Paul's audience probably would have inferred that, and there was no reason for Paul to spell it out or emphasize it especially if it was considered embarrassing. Paul simply wrote that Jesus was buried. That doesn't conflict with the default option, burial in a communal grave. Joseph of Arimathea is only found in the Gospels. Paul says nothing of him, and no other early source mentions him at all, which indicates that he was likely a later invention. And as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, Joseph was another apocryphal Jew who deep down knew that Jesus was right. This is a trope as old as Christianity, and one that still exists today, for example in Christian movies. There is no shortage of stories Christians tell each other about how those in other religions have some inkling that Christianity is true, especially Jews who were the first to reject Christ. William Lane Craig, who claims that it is, quote, an established fact that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb, has tried appealing directly to Paul's writings. Quote, Perhaps Paul was talking about a communal burial. Not when you look at that four-line formula in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is like an outline, which includes as the second line Joseph of Arimathea's burial of Jesus in the tomb. End quote. When Craig says that, quote, Joseph's burial of Jesus is in 1 Corinthians 15, 
That is a lie. There's no other way to put it. It's not there. Paul never mentions Joseph of Arimathea anywhere in any of his writing, and certainly not in 1 Corinthians 15. Craig has so little respect for his Christian audience that he doesn't even think they'll check the Bible verses he's referencing. So let's read from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. End quote. Did you hear anything about a tomb, or Joseph of Arimathea? All I heard is that he was buried. Well, that was the NIV, let's try the NLT. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Hmm, still nothing about Joseph of Arimathea. How about the King James Version? Quote, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day. End quote. Still just a burial. Hmm, no private tomb, no Joseph of Arimathea in our earliest sources. Here's what Craig said about it. Quote, Perhaps Paul was talking about a communal burial. Not when you look at that four-line formula in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is like an outline which includes as the second line, Joseph's burial of Jesus in the tomb. End quote. Craig is intentionally misleading his audience to believe that Joseph of Arimathea and the tomb are a part of Paul's writings, which are older than the Gospels. The word for that, in my book, is lying. If you're a fan of Craig, think about how much of a credulous rube he thinks you are. He's talking about what it says in the Bible which you probably have on your phone. He thinks that you don't know your Bible well enough to know he's lying, and he thinks you won't check. And you know what? He was probably right. So let me ask you a question. Has human sacrifice ever been necessary or effective? Even once. For Christians, I suppose the Romans were just tools for God to carry out a blood sacrifice, which was necessary for some reason. Sometimes it really hits me that Christianity incorporates human sacrifice into its theology. In fact, the Christian story makes no sense without human sacrifice. If you were to be a contrarian and take human sacrifice to be merely a barbaric practice that our superstitious ancestors accepted out of ignorance about how the world works, then you couldn't be a Christian. Jesus' human sacrifice wouldn't have been effective. It wouldn't have satiated God. Christians obviously don't prescribe blood sacrifices like they prescribe prayer, but they do believe that it worked that one time. I don't believe human sacrifice has ever worked. I don't believe it's ever been an effective means to accomplish anything, ever, once, in human history. Call me a snobby rationalist, but I think there's a world of difference between this belief and its negation. Why is everyone pretending that it's totally fine and normal that the majority of the country believes that a particular human sacrifice was necessary and effective? The Easter story is probably the starkest reminder that comes from Christianity that we're descended from backward, superstitious apes. 
Every Christian cross is another stamp of our lowly origin. That's all I have for you today. You can also catch me on Embrace the Void this week, where Aaron Rabinowitz and I continue our ongoing discussion about consciousness, and I enjoyed our conversation very much. I will also be appearing on the Right to Reason podcast coming up soon with five other people on the call there. It was more of a laid-back Google Hangout. There was no strict agenda for our conversation. The host, Robert Stanley, brought together people of a few different perspectives, I think with the hope that we would fight, and things got heated a few times. It was mainly about coronavirus and adjacent political issues. So check out The Right to Reason and Embrace the Void. Both of those should be out by the time you're hearing this, or out very soon. And I have new patrons to thank, Adelbert Red and Aletheia485. Thank you, Adelbert Red and Aletheia485. And thank you to my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Pre-Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to base your religion on a Jewish conspiracy, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.